a guide to mental and emotional wellness. Biblical wisdom, practical principles, clinical insight. By me, Dr. Jennifer Lundgren. Chapter 4. The Mind Quote, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 12, verse 2. Quote, All problems are illusions of the mind. Eckhart Tolle. The mind is an odd concept. We talk about it a lot, but no one can really define it clearly. We say, he's out of his mind, or I'm losing my mind. We talk about mindset or mindfulness, but what are we talking about? What is the mind? What is the brain? What is mental health? And how are we to think about all of these things as Christians? The analysis of the mind was first brought into modern psychology by Freud and has been done widely ever since, from identifying problematic thought patterns, the idea of the subconscious, the analysis of emotions and working memories, to studying the symptoms of mental illness, we are heavily focused on the brain and the mind. The mind is considered to be associated with the brain, and the term brain and mind are often used interchangeably. The brain is composed of nerve cells and is a physical thing that can be touched, whereas the mind is mental and cannot be touched. The brain gives rise to the mind. The mind uses the brain, and the brain responds to the mind. The mind generates energy through thinking, feeling, and choosing, and has been described as our aliveness, without which the physical brain and body would be useless. It reminds me of someone who might be in a coma and whose physical body and brain are functioning, but they're not themselves. They are not their alive self. The person's mind and brain have been damaged. The mind in action creates energy in the brain, and it can be measured by neuroscientists. Your mind is your thoughts, feelings, and the meanings you make of your situation, your mind is the conclusions that you draw. The Center for D Disease Control, the CDC, says that mental health includes our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. It affects how we think, feel, and act. It also helps determine how we handle stress, relate to others, and make healthy choices. It states that mental health is important at every stage of life, from childhood and adolescence through adulthood. We know that people struggle with their mental health, but it can be hard to understand tangibly what that means. Mental health diagnoses are clusters of symptoms that have to occur for several months and cause you to have significant impairment in your functioning. There's a variety of types of mental health challenges, the most common diagnosis being depression and anxiety. The Mayo Clinic defines depression as a mood disorder that causes a persistent feeling of sadness and loss of interest. It affects how you feel, think, and behave. Other symptoms include tiredness and a lack of energy, slowed thinking, irritability, loss of pleasure, and feelings of worthlessness or guilt, to name a few. A new study from the American Journal of Preventative Medicine 
found that nearly 10% of Americans suffer from symptoms of depression, with the mood disorder increasing fastest among teens and young adults. Anxiety disorders are characterized by having a persistent feeling of anxiety or dread, difficulty controlling feelings of worry, feeling restless, having difficulty concentrating, being wound up, irritable, or on edge, and having those feelings interfere with a person's daily life. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting 40 million adults, which is 19.1% of the population. There are many factors that contribute to these symptoms, and a multifaceted approach to treatment is wise. If you're experiencing the symptoms mentioned above and have been for an extended period of time, I would recommend meeting with a mental health professional to receive support. The foundations of health, including restorative sleep, daily movement, eating whole foods, being in nature, and social connection, are a great place to start improving if you're experiencing these symptoms. It is also imperative to know that there are many physical health symptoms that may manifest as mental health symptoms. Our hormones, vitamins and minerals, environment, and exposure to toxins can create symptoms that mirror mental health disorders, such as anxiety and depression. Getting as much information you can about your body can help you discover the origins of your symptoms. Having low levels or issues absorbing minerals, magnesiums, vitamins D and K, B vitamins can cause symptoms, leaky gut, thyroid problems, high levels of mercury, exposure to toxic mold, or issues with the functioning of your testosterone or estrogen progesterone can greatly affect your energy and mind. I had a student who was struggling with symptoms of sadness, low energy, fatigue, and muscle weakness, and it turned out to be a vitamin D deficiency, not depression. There's no amount of therapy that could have helped her with the underlying cause of her issues. It's critical to get your bodily health in order as the foundation for building your mental and emotional health. Understanding the common disorders that affect our minds and the trends in mental health is important. There are also many practices that you can engage in to protect your mind and optimize your mental health through your thought patterns. Gain awareness of your thought patterns. One idea that changed my life regarding mental health is this. We have a choice as to what we focus on, and the first step in that process is gaining awareness into our own thought processes. During the COVID lockdown, I had a habit of taking long walks in the evening after my kids were in bed. While I walked, I thought and I listened to podcasts. I had listened to a podcast that focused on having insight into the thoughts in your heads and how awareness of them is critical. I had heard that idea before as a mental health therapist, but I had never intentionally tried it myself. I had never really been still with my thoughts and simply watched them. The podcast talked about how a critical part of this practice is not judging yourself for what you find, but just noticing. I began practicing being quiet in my own mind. This is how I began to notice what I was thinking. This was a shocking discovery. In a way, it was like a mirror 
had been held up to my sinful self. I noticed how judgmental I could be or have unrealistic expectations for people. I saw my own greed, my own selfishness, my own negative thinking. It was a powerful reminder that even though I feel like I'm a good person, I'm sinful and I need my Savior. Meditation is a popular topic in modern psychology and mainstream neuroscience. It's estimated that we think between 60,000 and 90,000 thoughts per day, with most of them being the same thoughts we had the previous day, and most of them being negative or pessimistic. I never knew that we could control our thoughts, not like mind control or something, but we have the power to have an awareness of the thoughts that we think. All healthy humans have an inner stream of thoughts and feelings that include criticism, doubt, and fear. That's just our minds doing the job that they were designed to do, to try to anticipate and solve problems and avoid dangers and pitfalls. Thankfully, we have the power to challenge our thoughts. Most of our thoughts are automatic. We don't consciously develop a conclusion. The thought just pops into our minds. The power we have is to become aware of our thinking patterns and the conclusions and meanings we give our experiences. For instance, if someone cuts you off in traffic, your automatic thought might be, what a jerk, he has no regard for anyone around him. If you drive past this person and see that he is elderly, you might think to yourself, that old geezer shouldn't be driving, his kids should take away his license. This reminds me of a story of my friend who was nine months pregnant with twins and sobbing as she was driving slowly down the road. The person in the car next to her honked at her and then flipped her off as they drove past. It ended up being someone that my friend knew. The person who honked and flipped my friend off was mortified and apologized profusely, but it goes to show that we never know what anyone is experiencing. Our brains automatically tell us that whoever offends us on the road is inherently a bad person. Our bodies respond with a cascade of chemicals that puts us in fight-or-flight mode. The stress hormone cortisol is released in our brains. Our breath becomes short and shallow. Our heart rate increases and our palms may become sweaty. This is when we react out of anger and thus the phenomena Road rage is born. It is unbelievable how thoughts impact our bodies and how we can change our biology just by a few simple tweaks. We may automatically react with road rage, but we can catch ourselves. I was once driving all of my kids to school, and I drove past a bus that was trying to turn. The driver yelled out his window, You stupid idiot! My kids and I were both shocked, and we actually got it on tape with our dash cam. Although my instinct was to say, what a weirdo, that guy shouldn't be driving kids around with such an overactivated stress response, it turned out to be an awesome opportunity, not only to regulate my reaction in the moment, but to talk to my kids about it. We talked about the fact that the bus driver was likely struggling and dealing with a lot of stress. We talked about how it must have felt for the kids on the bus to hear language like that, and we actually said a prayer before I dropped them off at school. It would have been easy to feel like a victim and to think negative thoughts about him all day, 
but instead it was an opportunity to cultivate forgiveness, empathy, tools to regulate our emotions, and a stronger prayer life. Not a bad trade-off for being called an idiot. Guard your mind. When I give self-care trainings, one piece of advice that I offer is to guard your mind. I originally heard this from Tony Robbins, who heard it from his mentor, Jim Rohn. I thought about what my mom said to us kids constantly in our childhood. Garbage in, garbage out. She said this a lot of times when I was caught watching trashy talk shows after school. My parents were intentional, aka strict, about the media that we could consume as kids. And thankfully, smartphones weren't around in my prime neurodevelopmental years. I couldn't watch PG-13 movies until I was 13, which was unfortunate for me because Titanic came out in theaters when I was 12. I remember renting the movie Spice World with my friends for a sleepover. My mom said she didn't want us to watch it because it wasn't quality media and the image being promoted wasn't a Christ-like image she was comfortable with us having. While growing up, at times I felt major FOMO, fear of missing out, due to missing some movies and shows that my friends were watching. Now I couldn't be more thankful to my parents for not exposing me to media that impacted my thoughts, feelings, and focus. Garbage in, garbage out is real, especially in our social media digital world. It's impacting our brains and our minds at an alarming rate. Our minds are not being guarded. They're exposed to every shooting, every tragedy, every murder, every war, everyone's every injustice, and everyone's opinion about all of it. We have young people who are live streaming themselves as they end their own lives. The suicide rate is the highest it has been in the past century, and mental health is declining. Our brains and minds are also impacted by trauma. Trauma has been described as any pattern of stress that activates our nervous systems and leads to an overactivity or an overreactivity in our brains. Historically, we have thought about trauma in war veterans or those who have been in an accident or a natural disaster. For a while in the mental health world, Trauma was overused, and every training focused on trauma. In the post-COVID world, we are seeing that many people changed in their stress response. When our stress response is activated, it releases a neurochemical called cortisol. This is a functional response that keeps us safe when we perceive a threat. It alerts our bodies to fight or flee from danger. What happens in modern day is that our brains don't do a great job of making a distinction between threat and danger, and they give us a signal that we are in danger when the input that we are receiving isn't an actual threat. In thinking about the recent pandemic and how that caused extreme discord in our families and around the country, a lasting impact among many is the stress of feeling unsafe and living in disharmony. If someone you love disagreed with you about COVID laws, rules, restrictions, or regulations, I'm guessing you may have experienced some conflict. No matter what you believe about it, it's stressful to experience conflict, and your stress response is activated when you do. Now, if that loved one calls you on the phone, 
just seeing that person's name might send a cortisol response to your brain. Our stress response is constantly activated by social media and stressful news headlines as well. Our brains are designed to keep us safe, not make us happy. So when we see ambiguous headlines that insinuate danger or threat to us, it is biologically instinctual that we keep reading. The news capitalizes on this neurobiology and brings up the worst things possible to keep us reading. So guard your mind. The garbage our minds are consuming is not sustainable for mental health and wellness. I'm not saying that you can't look at the news or talk about hard things, but be intentional about how you communicate them and what you focus on. Resist a victim mentality and negative thought patterns. Complaining also releases cortisol. It's not healthy for you. It may feel cathartic to vent or complain in the moment, but it is inherently stressful not only for you, but also for the recipient of your complaining. Complaining is especially stressful for men, and they have found that exposure to complaining actually lowers their testosterone. You think that men with high testosterone are aggressive and lash out like the Hulk, but it is actually the opposite. Men with low levels of testosterone tend to be more irritable and aggressive. Who would have thought that estrogen is the aggressive hormone? In hard times, many people bond by complaining. There's so much content there, you're never at a loss for conversation if you talk about all the stupid people out there or all the ways the government or your boss or your kids or the people of Walmart have wronged you. There was actually a study done that looked at the impact of complaining. Stanford psychologists took 104 subjects and assigned them to one of two groups. One group was told to write a short essay about a time that they were bored, and the other was told to write about a time when life seemed unfair or when they felt wronged or slighted by someone. Afterward, the participants were asked if they wanted to help the researchers with an easy task. Those who had written about a time that they had been wronged or slighted were 26% less likely to help the researchers. They were also more likely to steal the researchers' pens and leave trash behind. The main finding of the study was that complaining gives us what is called a victim mentality, where we see ourselves as victims in a situation. They said that this mentality leaves us feeling selfish and entitled. We're in survival mode, and that makes us inherently selfish. We don't help others when we're in survival mode. We don't see the perspective of others or have empathy. We focus on us and our needs and wants. During COVID, I made a point to still have an option to have my college courses in person as well as online. I remember being in the office in a building that had literally no one else in it and thinking to myself, why am I the only one that cares? That's not a good question. If you ask yourself a question, your brain will give you an answer. Remember, it hates ambiguity. So when I ask myself, why am I the only one who cares? My brain will give me a critical and selfish answer. I don't know, you're on your own, or no one works as hard as you. I also remember being asked to join certain committees around that time and thinking, nope, I'm not doing any more work. I work harder than anyone else here anyway. Victim mentality. 
Remember, that makes us selfish and entitled, not exactly the best version of ourselves. Comparing ourselves to others or judging ourselves can also create a victim mindset. When we compare our experience with anyone else and think that we don't have a right to feel a certain way because we don't have it so bad, this kind of comparison can lead to minimize or diminish our own suffering. Surviving and thriving through hardship requires absolute acceptance of what was and what is. If we discount our pain or punish ourselves for feeling lost, isolated, or scared about the challenges in our lives, however insignificant those challenges may seem to someone else, then we are still choosing to be victims. We're not seeing our choice. We're judging ourselves. As Holocaust survivor Edith Eger says, I don't want you to hear my story and say, my own suffering is less significant. I want you to hear my story and say, if she can do it, so can I. It's also important to have some insight into thought patterns that are creating distress. Once again, you have the power to notice them and change them. For example, what are some thoughts that you may have if you look at your bank account and it shows less money than you were expecting. If you were gone all day and no one emptied the dishwasher, despite the fact that your whole family is home and capable of doing so, the dirty dishes are piling up. A coworker rolls her eyes when you speak up in a meeting. Or when your child says, you're acting like our boss and you're a really bad boss. And that is a true story for me. <laughs> a negative thought pattern is easy to develop in any of these situations. Money is especially a challenging topic because the lack of money can activate a strong fight-or-flight response because people truly perceive their survival is at stake when there's a scarcity. The lack of money triggers fear in some people, and they often react irritably when discussing it. It's a challenging topic, especially for couples. If you look at your account and see less than you expect, you may have a whole neurological pathway of fear, frustration, resentment toward your spouse, anger, and a whole slew of negative thoughts. Sometimes our thoughts simply aren't rational. You might think, I should have married someone rich, or I wish we had more disciplined, or you spend so much because you were an entitled rich kid growing up. This lack of finances may trigger your thoughts to become so heated that you attack your spouse as a person and criticize core aspects of their identity out of your perception and fear. I remember a couple coming to me for therapy because the wife had racked up a $3,000 credit card bill at Kohl's. Although the couple had enough in their savings to cover the expense, the husband was so upset that they needed professional help to manage the situation. Communicate safety to your body. When you are triggered, it's imperative that you have some insight into the fear that you're feeling and the conclusions that you're making. The most effective way to deal with fear is by communicating safety to your body, which can quickly or automatically be triggered into fight or flight. You see a low account balance, your heart rate is automatically increased. One of the best tools that modern psychology has given us is a pause. 
Sometimes we expect complex or innovative solutions to the problems we face, but when your thoughts become frustrated, resentful, or angry, the best thing that you can do is to close your mouth before addressing the situation. Literally, just pause and do whatever you can to regulate your body so your mind will follow suit. I have several ways to do this at the end of the chapter. I once worked at a clinic with a group of clients with addiction, and we talked about how reacting to situations can have detrimental outcomes. My clients discussed that when they reacted without pausing, it led to some of the worst imagined outcomes. They relapsed or overdosed on drugs and alcohol. They assaulted their friends and loved ones. One client talked about impulsively attempting suicide. Some discussed how their lack of a pause led them to be sentenced to jail and even to prison. Years of recovery went down the drain when they reacted by using drugs or alcohol, not to mention the words that were said to their children and loved ones. It makes me think of how we should never make a permanent decision based on our temporary feelings. Taking a pause and regulating your body before you act can change your life. It's also very effective to solve problems in our minds by regulating our bodies and asking God for help. It doesn't always work to generate problems of the mind with solutions from the mind. When you are generating solutions from the mind, I think the first step is to become aware of what you're thinking. Then, a model of analyzing your thoughts, originally developed by Byron Katie but adapted by Daniel Amen, is to ask yourself if this thought is true. It might feel weird to do this because you probably think your thoughts are true, but ask yourself if this thought is absolutely true. And then consider how you would feel if you didn't have this thought at all. Dr. Daniel Amen, a pioneer in brain health research, recommends that his patients take their top 100 negative thoughts and analyze them with this model. It's pretty intense, but you can see how it can transform your brain, your body, and your mind. Exercise. Step one, think of a thought that makes you feel bad. Write it down. Step two, considering this painful thought, ask the following four questions. Is it true? Is it absolutely true? How do I react? What happens when I believe that thought? Who or what would I be without the thought? Consider your focus. Modern psychology and neurobiology now discuss in depth how our brains can rewire themselves based on our experiences. Historically, we thought that we were born with the brains that we had, but we know that our brains change based on our feelings, our environment, our thinking, our interactions, and even our eating. That is why trauma can impact the brain. We also know that focus is very important because when it comes to your brain, they say that where focus goes, energy flows, and what you focus on strengthens. If your focus is, I'm a bad mom, I'm a bad mom, I'm a bad mom, That belief is going to strengthen, even if it's completely false. Your brain is going to look for ways to be compatible with that belief. Thus, 
It'll be extra aware of data that confirms that you're a bad mom. Same goes for thoughts of your spouse, your parents, your kids, your neighbors, the people who you believe the opposite of what you do politically, and your thoughts about your crazy relatives who rant on Facebook. It's critically imperative for your mental health that you are aware of what you focus on and where you direct your mental energy. God also discusses the importance of your mind and your focus. In Philippians 4 verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Wow! Think of how different the world would be if we all focused our mind on topics that had these qualities. The devil, the world, and our own sinful selves encourage us to think about whatever is new, whatever is crazy, whatever is frightening, whatever is frustrating, whatever is popular, whatever is infuriating, whatever leads to despair. Direct your mind to the content and the areas described in Philippians 4.8. How can you focus on whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy? How can you encourage your families to focus on things that have these qualities? How can you do this from a place of joy and excitement instead of out of duty or guilt? God has a framework for the types of things he wants us to think about. He knows neurobiology better than anyone because he designed and created our brains. He knows the importance of what we think and how that influences our feelings, our bodies, our brains, and our behavior. When you look at your bank account and see a low number, how can you think about what is true? God's got you. God will take care of you. God is using this as an opportunity to shape you. What we know about the brain is that it can change based on what we think. Our bodies can change based on what we think. We can think ourselves into a panic attack. That doesn't mean our panic isn't real. It means that our minds are powerful. Here are examples of thoughts from Philippians 4.8 that can help you focus. What is true? God is good. He's in control of my life. He will protect me. I can handle hard things through him who gives me strength. Whatever is noble. I will do the right thing even when no one is looking. I'm a strong Christian and I will show my faith out of love for God. I work hard and protect those around me. What is right? I will forgive this person because God forgives me. That was a hard situation, but I'm choosing to show this person love because God loves me. Even though I'm overwhelmed, I'm going to react in a peaceful and loving manner. What is pure? God loves me. Love is the greatest fruit of the Spirit. I love my husband and wife, and I will honor them with what I think and do. I am cleansed through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Love is all you need. Oh, wait, that's the Beatles. Whatever is lovely... I will love and serve God and my neighbor. I will show others love and let the love of Christ radiate from me. Whatever is admirable, God gives me courage to do the right thing. I work hard and have discipline to honor God. 
If anything is excellent and praiseworthy, God grants me opportunities to have a beautiful marriage and create a safe and a joyful home with my family. God gives me strengths and abilities to make an impact in the world He has created. I am able to work hard and praise Him with my God-given talents and serve Him joyfully in this world. He gives me the peace that surpasses all understanding. To Him be the glory. Our minds are powerful, and there's many ways that we can protect our minds from the world. Guarding our minds, communicating safety to our bodies when we feel upset, being intentional about our thinking, and keeping our focus on whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, excellent, and praiseworthy is a great place to start. Our thoughts, our feelings, and our situations will begin to transform when we shift our focus from the fear of the world to the love of God. If you'd like to purchase your copy of Jenna's book, just go to the Time of Grace store or click the link in today's episode notes. Thanks for listening.